Good morning. It is great to be with my friends in Frisco and Fort Worth and Plano and right here in Dallas and folks that are dropping in online. Uh, we are studying the book of Philippians, which has been just amazing and just such a great thing to do, not just this time of year, but any time of the year. And uh, if you have your Bibles, we're in chapter three, turn there. I think you're going to find it incredibly relevant and helpful to you wherever you're at in your understanding of God and just your journey with him. So Philippians chapter three, as you guys are flipping there, let me just um, remind you or maybe share with you, for those of you that don't know, I've had kind of an exciting fall. It has been uh, filled with kind of one major life event after another. And in August, I um, took my fifth child off to college for him for the first time. I returned my fourth child to college for her second year. Uh, a week later, they came back because I married my third child off. And then uh, about eight weeks later, just a couple of weeks ago, I married my second child off. And then about six days ago, I moved my parents from St. Louis into my house. So we have had uh, quite the fall. It's been a bit of an exciting uh, series of events. And um, I will tell you that the reason I kind of share that with you is I want to set something up for you. Because just a couple of weeks ago when I married my sweet Kirby at her wedding, this is a picture uh, of me when I saw her in her wedding dress for the first time that day and she was getting ready to go and get some pictures done. And, um, and then here's a great picture of her and uh, her amazing new young husband that I could not be more proud to give her that name, Ankin, that she now is carrying um, as they celebrated that moment when I said, I now pronounce you man and wife, you may kiss your bride. It was awesome. We had an amazing time. Now, what we did is we kind of went out of town. We were just a short hour, hour and a half away from here for the wedding. And so that means we were together all weekend. It was on a Sunday. That's why I wasn't here. And um, it was a great opportunity to be with the wedding party. And both Kirby and Austin included some folks in their wedding party that had been a part of their life from uh, different life stages that maybe weren't fully pursuing Jesus or at all or in any of the ways that they had been. And um, then there were others that were along kind of with the journey of faithfulness that these two, Austin and Kirby, had been on for decades. It's interesting. You know, um, recently I did a podcast we, we do for church leaders, which means for you. It's called the Church Leaders Podcast. I would really encourage you guys to avail yourself to that resource. They, they just asked us to do one called The Leader and His Family. And so uh, I was on that just talking about um, what it was like for my kids to grow up in um, a, a, a leader of um, hopefully a Jesus community's house. And so Kirby, uh, the second daughter, and Cooper, the third son, were on that with me, and we talked. And Kirby was recently asked the question, what was it like to grow up in this household? And she answered, she goes, well, I'll tell you what it was like. She goes, it was, um, it was something that set me on a course where right now, as a 20, you know, three, 24-year-old woman, I have more joy and less scars. That's what it was like. It was like a tremendous gift because I saw people that were fully devoted to Jesus, not just in the house, but in this faith community of which I'm a part. My kids, by the grace of God, all are, are pursuing a personal relationship and full response to Jesus because they grew up around you. I mean, I literally mean that around you. They saw a life change. They saw God invade your life and bring you to a place of um, a radical surrender. They saw you walk with Jesus for the decades that they've been alive with full devotion, not just go to church, but be God's people. And they saw the joy and the meaning and the purpose and the life-giving world that it is to live with Jesus, for Jesus in this world, and they're all in. And Kirby and Austin, because of that, both of them, because Austin was raised in a very similar family, there is more joy and less scars in their life. And they're just marked by incredible joy. And what we did when we gathered together that Sunday morning, because we were together all weekend, we, we had a little time. And so I led um, a devotional, a church service, if you will, for a lot of the wedding party. And um, what I taught on that morning was the five warning passages of Hebrews. You're kind of like, what? The five warning passages of Hebrews? Those, that's some of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. You're there on a wedding weekend. You got a wedding party. You got some folks who don't really know Jesus, others who are around Jesus for a long time. And it's your daughter's wedding day, and you're teaching on the five warning passages from the book of Hebrews? Yes. And I'm going to show you why. Because the book of Hebrews, it was written to... Guess who? Hebrews. That's why it's called the book of Hebrews. It was written to a bunch of Jews. And these Jews, most of them had been 98% um, of the early church. In other words, the first people that believed that Jesus was God's expression of love and means through which we could be reconciled to him 
was a Jewish Messiah. He was what the law and the prophets pointed to. And now we no longer have to use the, the symbols of God's grace and the symbols of a coming provision. God's grace had come and the provision had come. And there were a bunch of Jews that go, oh my gosh, this is what Isaiah was talking about. Those Christmas cards that no one sent back then because Christmas hadn't come, has come. A child's been born, a son's been given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Prince of Peace. He is mighty God, and he saved us. Now watch this. The book of Hebrews has five times in it warning passages, and it starts in the book of Hebrews with just basically saying this to you. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is a bigger deal than Moses. Jesus is a bigger deal than the prophets. Jesus is a bigger deal than Joshua. Jesus is a bigger deal than Melchizedek, who Father Abraham bowed to and paid tithes to. Jesus is a bigger deal than the temple. Jesus is a bigger deal than the temple sacrifices. Jesus is the coming shepherd king. And you don't want to miss him. And so what I did at this wedding with the wedding party, I just said, guys, what you're sitting in the middle of is a weekend with incredible joy. And there was such purity, not just in the dating relationship, but the love that was there between the families, there was more joy and less scars. And I was just saying, this Jesus that got us here, we cannot lose our focus on him. And I took the five warning passages in Hebrews, and I'm going to read you the first one. And I'm going to show you how it sets us up for what Paul did to his gathering of friends that he was hanging out with in Philippi in chapter three. Watch. This is Hebrews chapter two, verses, really, I'll just read one through three. And this is what he says. For this reason, because Jesus is amazing. And he is the center of all things, better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than temple sacrifices, better than everything. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard about Jesus and from Jesus so that we don't drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, in other words, um, God gave, we know, the law, which Hebrews, Jews, thought was a pretty big deal, this thing called the Pentateuch. And it came to Moses through intermediaries, through angels. If the word that was given to us through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience against that received a just penalty, watch this, verse three. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In other words, if the picture and the description of the person was a big deal and you weren't supposed to be flippant towards it when the person is here, it's a big deal. Think about how in some uh, unhealthy nation states, if there are statues and pictures of um, ruling dictators, you know, if you somehow desecrate them or if you would walk by and spit on a statue of Lenin, do you think that might have gotten you in trouble, you know, in the USSR at a certain point? You think had you um, thrown some paint on a statue of Saddam Hussein, you know, in the, in the 1980s and 1990s in Iraq, gotten you in trouble? Well, imagine if you were walking by Saddam Hussein and you spit on him. That's kind of the thinking here. Now, let me explain to you why I did that. Because what Paul is doing in Philippians chapter 3 is he's basically saying, hey, listen, this is a really big deal. People make the mistake and they think the book of Philippians is about joy. The book of Philippians is not about joy. And the book of Hebrews is not about warning passages. The book of Hebrews is about the superiority and the beauty and the centrality and the magnificence of Jesus. The book of Hebrews is about the beauty and the centrality and the magnificence of uh, the book of Philippians is about the beauty and the significance and the centrality of Jesus. And one of the outflows of knowing the beauty and the significance and centrality and exaltation of Jesus is joy. Joy is the flag, one guy said, that flies in the castle of the heart when the king is there. And when you understand, okay, that the king has come and that you can know him and that he loves you, it just produces in your life this incredible joy. Now, look, let me give you a way to understand the book of uh, Philippians chapter three, okay? 
This is basically like a Christian life map. If you're around Watermark very long and we kind of throw you into a Jesus community, into a group of followers that kind of hang out with him and love him, then we're going to at some point want you to share your, your journey, your story. Okay. This is chapter three is the believer's life map. And what you're going to have is in chapter three, verses one through nine, you're going to see a believer's past. And there's going to be a word that pops as we read chapter three, verses one through nine. And that word is count, consider, figure. And then you're going to get to verses 10 through 16. And you're going to see us look at a believer's present. Jesus takes care of your past. He makes everything in your past largely irrelevant. And what you should do with your present is act like now he's dealt with the sin of your past and everything that you thought was important is no longer important. And so in your present, you pursue him like nothing. And the word you're going to see there is to press on or to strive. And then you're going to see in verses 17 through 21, the believer's future. And what you're going to learn is the word there is that you should look or anticipate or hope in. A good way to remember Philippians chapter three is like this. It's like a joke, okay? So imagine this. Uh, if I said to you a joke, like, because what's the famous joke, right? A rabbi, uh, a pastor, and a, I don't know, something else walk into a bar. You know those kind of jokes, right? So this is kind of the way um, you can remember Philippians chapter three. An accountant, an athlete, and an alien walk into a church. And what Paul's gonna do is walk you through your past, your present, and your future. Okay, your past, you need to figure this way. You need to be an accountant. Your present, you need to be an athlete. You need to work for. Your future, you're like an alien because of your future. You, you are, you're not home yet. You are citizens of another world. And so you're not surprised that the world that you're in is not the world that you want because it's not the world that Jesus wants for you. And so you look forward to going home. An accountant, an athlete, and an alien walk into a church. Philippians 3. Y'all with me? I like Paul as a kindred spirit because it says, finally, last point, two more chapters, right? It's kind of like me, right? <laughs> Let me wrap this up. 30 more minutes and we'll be done. <laughs> finally, he says, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, this is interesting. Let's remind ourselves, if you have not been hanging out with us, Paul's in jail and he's writing to free people. Now, typically, people that are free are writing letters to folks in jail saying, hang in there. Right? We know you're innocent. We don't think you're going to be there long. It's going to be okay. No, this is the guy in jail, and he's writing a letter to uh, people that are free, and he's saying, hey, man, listen, just keep your eye on the ball. Remember, this is where your joy should come from. It's about Jesus. It's not about jail, or it's not about freedom. I, I hear all the time from my friends when they go to El Salvador with me, or they go to Haiti, or they go to Africa, or they go to places that we think are third world, or where people have less than we have, I, I hear the same thing every time. They always come back and they go, I just can't believe the joy these people have. I just can't believe the, the, the love and the zeal for life that these folks have. They don't have anything that we have. And they're so much freer than we are, and joyful than we are. Now here's why, here's why. Because when you don't have things that distract you from the thing, it makes you have the thing that's going to give you what all your things you're pursuing you think are going to give you. And so it's kind of like, you know, when, when you're knocked down and you're laying on your back, the only way to look is up. When you don't have anything else to satisfy you, it makes you look for the only thing that maybe is out there for all of us, and that is the satisfaction. There's a God who has explained why this world is jacked up, why, why there's sadness in the world, and why he's going to, how he's going to deal with it, and that he is your hope. It's all you've got. And when you focus on the one who is the hope, and like it's all you've got, you get more of it. And that's really where Paul was living, and he wanted to share that with his friends. So let me just say this to you. If you're not rejoicing in the Lord, again, the focus of Philippians, surprisingly, is the Lord. It's Jesus. And if you want your life to be filled with joy and purpose and meaning, you got to make that the focus of your life. And just here's the deal. Maybe you can relate to me. But even though my daughter grew up in a home that we have done all we can to focus on the Lord, right? I got to tell you, she also grew up in a home where the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the concern for many things continually choke out the word of God that would push us more towards 
Jesus. And the more we push towards Jesus, the more joy we have and the less scars we have. Now, can I just say this to you? Okay. Um, if you rejoice in your works, in your, in your righteousness, it's not going to be great joy to you very long. I'm about to teach on that extensively. If you rejoice in your work, what you do, if you try and find meaning in your work, you're going to find out that life doesn't work out to be very meaningful for you. If you focus on your children, right? If you have a child-centered marriage or a child-centered life, my child-centered success, my child-centered academics, my child-centered sports, you're not going to have much joy for very long. If you have a, um, you know, how many of you guys would largely define yourself as healthy? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you would say, right now I'm largely healthy, right? Okay, I, I would too, but here's the thing. You need to know something. Good health is just the slowest way to die. It's what it is. Okay, you're going to die. All of us at some point are not going to be well. And if you try and wrap up your, 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 your joy in your health, then prepare yourself to be really discouraged. If your joy and rejoicing is in circumstance or in your comfort or in your ease or in your college football team, you're not going to be happy for long. Okay, because something's going to disappoint you. And all Paul is saying right here is don't do that. Don't make that mistake. Let me just say this. There's nothing wrong with work. Work existed before the fall. Work was God's gift to us to give us purpose and meaning and to do, be, be creators. We ought to be excellent in the way that we work. It's part of our testimony, but it's not where we find ultimate meaning. Our meaning is in God, which is why we work differently. Children, the scripture says, are a gift from the Lord. But they are not the Lord. Let me tell you, when we get into a mistake is when we start to venerate that which the creator has given us and we make it that which is our ultimate source of joy. No, the purpose of every beautiful and good thing is to show us that the giver of those things is beautiful. So we love him more. I mean, God doesn't want us to be sick. Disease, death, health, and cancer, that wasn't God's gift to us. That's a result of the fall. And so while you have good health, thank God for it. While you have comfort and ease, thank God for it. Use your comfort. But riches, I hope you are wealthy. I really do. I don't mind that you have lots of resource. The Bible doesn't say having lots of resources is a problem. The Bible says that you're foolish if you put your hope in it because money takes wings. When sex, I hope you enjoy that sex in every way God intended you to. Sex is a gift from God. But when you venerate sex and make it the reason that you're here, it's going to leave you empty. It's, gonna, you're, it's going to become a, you're gonna become a slave to it and perverted in it and never satisfied with it. And God says, just know that I'm good. I give you good gifts. I give you sex. I give you marriage. I give you children. I give you good health. I give you jobs. I give you comfort and ease sometimes. But don't be surprised because there's going to be a lot in this world that's not comfortable or easy because sin has tainted this world. I'm going to rescue you from it. I've done something about your contribution to sin and death in this world. I'm going to deliver you from that. Put your joy in me. Rejoice in me. So if you're in a tough spot like jail, falsely accused, hang in there. Enjoy me by faith. To live is Christ. To die, gain. It's all about Jesus. Okay? So in, a, in effect, everything in life that is not Jesus is designed to remind you it's not Jesus. That's why it's here. It's a gift. It's not bad, okay? The purpose of everything on earth is to remind you that nothing satisfies you ultimately except Jesus. And when you use it correctly, to remind you that Jesus is really kind. God gives us relationships and music and he gives us sex and he gives us sports and he gives us sometimes comfort and ease and the ability to make money. But if we love those things more than him, we're going to pursue things that aren't life-giving. And so Paul is just saying right here, I mean, honestly, you could shut it down right here. And if you'll just believe that and walk out of here and go, I'm going to be about Jesus. You got Philippians three. Rejoice in the Lord. Enjoy other things. Just don't put your hope and your life in them. Make sure your life balances the perspective of what is ultimate. There's people who say, that, well, I'm about God first, then family, and then, and then me, you know, uh, or, uh, and then work, and then me. I would just say, no, no, that, you, it's not like Jesus is something you do first and then you move on. Jesus is something you focus on in your work, in your family, in your personal use of time, and that's what gives you joy.
God isn't first, he's not prominent in your life. If you want joy, if you want the life you want, he has to be preeminent in all things. Got it? Paul says, for me to tell you this, to write the same thing, is not trouble for me. It's a safeguard of you. It's why we do church. It's why we write letters to churches. Paul is just saying, it's why we gather. Guys, listen. We are told in the book of Hebrews, okay, to encourage each other day after day, as long as it's called today, so that we don't get consumed by the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, or the concern for many things. We don't drift back into relational um, religious performance as a means for our righteousness. We don't drop uh, back into uh, relational idolatry, thinking if I just got married or this marriage was better, or I was married to that person, or I had more sex, my life would be full. We don't drift back into thinking that real life is where real life can be found. No, real life is with Jesus. And we get together every week, and if you're wise, in communities every day, reminding each other of that, and we need to be reminded. I've got to continually be reminded by other people as a safeguard to my heart, which is an idol factory. My life is always producing idols. If I was just healthier, wealthier, or wiser, if I was just more popular or rich, more comfortable, had more sex, had I don't know what, plug it in. My heart is always wooing me. My flesh is always wooing me, and I need to be with you and with this and to be reminded continually. I don't know if you guys realize this, but there's this thing called just the relentless return of the weekend. You know, I work my tail off, as JP and other communicators do, to come here and just try and serve you just a little bit. But I wanted to say this to you. It's no trouble to me. It's a safeguard to you. It's why we gather together, to remind ourselves of the beauty of God. So here we go. Remember how I told you, here's the joke. An accountant, an athlete, and an alien walk into a bar. Here comes the accountant. Or an accountant, and this is the better way to say it, an athlete and an alien walk into a church. Here comes the accountant. Here's what he wants you to do as you look back on your past. First of all, he's gonna say this, kind of a setup and almost an introduction. He's gonna say three times in verse two, which tells you that there's an enemy that's out there because really this whole chapter, another way to understand this chapter is there's two major threats to um, the the, the two major opponents to real joy in your life, to the progress of the gospel in your life, the grace of God working out in your life. And they are the dogs and they are distractions. Now, when you think dogs, you need to think not cute little golden retriever puppies you follow on Instagram. Okay. You need to think Cujo. You need to think ravenous. Okay. Nuisance dogs. When the word dogs are used, it is used not of house pets. It is used of dingoes. It is used of um, things that you see them and you scoop your children up. You have one place in town, you throw away your garbage so the dogs go there and you don't want them near you. What's interesting is that Jews called non-Torah people dogs. They called Gentiles non Moses-infused people, dogs. Paul's about to use the author's words against them. Because one of the things that happens is that, um, that, that there is um, people that followed Paul everywhere he went. And they were called Judaizers. And they were uh, people that he wrote the entire letter of Galatians to. It's the Galatian problem. And so read the book of Galatians, and Paul talks about these people that are always nipping and barking at his heels. And they're coming in behind this gospel beauty where it says that all that the law pointed to, all the prophets pointed to, have been fulfilled in Jesus. God has done for you what you can't do for yourself. All you need is Christ. You don't need the temple sacrifice. You don't need, because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. You don't need Abraham and Moses and the prophets. Jesus didn't come to abolish them. He just fulfilled them. Center on Jesus. And the dogs would come along beside them and say, no, you need to be Jewish. You need to practice the festivals. You need to uh, be circumcised. You need to act Jewish and have all the external behavior that we think makes us righteous and that you need to do in order to be righteous in God's eyes. And Paul said, those folks are dogs. Now, let me just say this to you. 
We are, if we know this message of what Jesus has done and who he is, we are evangelists. The word evangelist comes from the Greek word eu, E-U, which means well, angelos, you angelos, evangelist. Well-spoken angels are messengers. That's literally what the word means. Well-spoken messengers. What we do, what I do, is deliver the mail. Everywhere I go, I deliver the mail. And the mail is that hope has come, Christ has come. And when you are a mailman, what is the number one nuisance to mailmen? Dogs. <laughs> right? And so let me ask you a quick question. How many of you have had someone barking at you? Why are you so big on Jesus? What do you mean there's only one way to God? Hey, I am frankly okay. I think if my good enough isn't good enough for God, then pfft, with him. Hey, well, what about the Buddhist? What about the Muslim? What about the Mormon? What about those who have never heard? What do you mean your gospel is the only way that men can be saved? If you haven't had somebody bark at you about your declaring the kindness of God in his revelation through Jesus, I'm going to tell you, there's only one reason that hasn't happened to you this week. It's because you haven't delivered the mail. There's not a mailman in America that wasn't barked at this week. And if you weren't barked at, if you didn't experience somebody going, what do you mean there's morality? What do you mean there's a... What do you mean there's binary gender? Okay? If that hasn't happened to you this week, I'm telling you, it's because you have not been delivering the mail. And so Paul's saying, beware, man, because there's people that want to bark you into silence, and loving people are not silence. Let me say again, when you deliver the mail, you don't want to be one of those gruff guys when they open the door and say, how you doing? Go, ah, here's your mail, right? You know what... You don't want to shove it in the mailbox, okay, and agitate people. You love when you've got a nice mailman. Hey, how you doing, Mr. Wagner? Good to see you. All right. I mean, you love good mailmen, right? Guys who take care and do everything they can to cover it so it's not wet when it's delivered. But end of the day, man, just deliver the mail and be as good as mailman as you can. But if you're not being barked at this week, it's because you are not delivering the mail. It's because you're distracted with other things. Now, dogs bark, saying, I don't want you on my property bringing something to it. And he says, beware of these people, because they will bark you into submission. He calls them this, in verse 2, dogs, evil workers. These guys think they're doing good by representing God. God's loving. True. God wants you to be righteous, and so you do these things to be righteous. God does want you to be righteous. Those are not the things that will make you righteous. It's things maybe that righteous people would do. But they're telling you you need to do it to be righteous. They are of the false circumcision. Now watch this. I'm going to go to verse 3 real quick. For we are the true circumcision. Paul's going to contrast these folks you need to beware, beware, beware in verse 2 to listen to the true circumcision who aren't dogs, evil workers, and, and false circumcisers. They are, we'll look at verse 3. There are other people who worship in the spirit of God, who glory in Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's saying there is a direct contrast to some of the people that are walking into Philippi after he left and trying to mess up the church. And these dogs are gonna bark you off your mission. And he says, be careful. Now let me just give it to you real quickly. Verse two, where it says the false circumcision, there's also right there in verse three, the same word circumcision, except it's not the same word. In verse two, the word is mutilators. It's like somebody who destroys their genitalia for some perverse reason. When your genitalia was compromised, when you crushed a testicle, that's Deuteronomy 23, which if you ever wonder what God thinks happens if you crush a testicle, testicle, he says, you can't serve in my temple courts. That's Deuteronomy 23, Leviticus 21. And you're kind of like, why, why did God say that, right? If somebody goes through some, some maybe uh, fit of frenzy or devotion to show... Um, uh, either, either mutilated by men or mutilates himself because of some perverse reason, God says, hey, that person, I still love them, but they're not gonna serve in my temple courts. Why? Because people who serve in God's temple courts, he wants to symbolically be able to reproduce. And if you're not reproducing, you must not know what's going on in the temple courts. You must be somebody that's gonna tell people, deliver the mail, in effect. So watch this. What Paul's saying here, and this is important in verse two, is these guys aren't circumcising you, they are crushing your genitalia. They're mutilating They're not doing what God wants. 
which is the true circumcision, which is a, a, a mark. It really, the word in verse three is like a pruning. It makes it more useful. These guys aren't coming along and making you more useful to God. Uh, you know, they are coming along and destroying your utility to God. And so he has a word play. Even though in the English it's translated the same way, it's two different words. One of them's heightening your pleasure. One of them's heightening your, your, your cleanliness. One of them's heightening your utility. The other one is destroying you. Verse four, Paul says, you wanna know who I am? I'm not somebody who puts my confidence in my flesh. I'm not somebody who glories in me. I glory in Jesus and I teach in the spirit of truth, not in the spirit of error. And so he's writing a letter to his friends, which is no trouble to him and a safeguard to them. And he's telling them, listen, now watch. Paul's now gonna go through and he's gonna list out seven things, four which he had nothing to do with, three which his own conviction pursued. And he's going to say, if anybody's going to be proud of their flesh, it ought to be me. These dogs that are barking at you, I'm best in show. I was the top dog. And I can tell you, I was no friend of God. Watch him. If anybody is a good dog, if anybody has confidence in their flesh, like these, these Judaizers, these uh, Gal- the Galatian heresy, these dogs, these people who thought you're a dog because you don't know the Old Testament, these people say the Old Testament makes you righteous, they're dogs. They're the dogs. He says this, if anybody has confidence in their flesh, if anyone has a, a mind to put confidence in their flesh, I far more than anybody. Why? I was circumcised in the eighth day. That's what the law required. He goes, I was born into a family that on the eighth day circumcised. You know what's really interesting? I asked when my first son was born, um, I didn't know this, but your OBGYN is the one who circumcises your child. And, and, uh, and he, you know, they circumcise your child if you are so inclined. Now, before your kid is out of uh, the hospital with mama, which is anywhere from two to three days. And I asked my OBGYN, who he and I formed a friendship, having six kids, you know, basically together. Uh, <laughs> I asked him when my third one, okay, came, and it was a boy, and so the first one they were gonna, you know, circumcise, uh, TMI, probably. All right. But, um, but I said, hey, man, look, we're just on the third day. I want to wait to the eighth day. Can I bring him back? Kind of kidding him. Because is there a reason that we circumcise kids on the eighth day? You know what he told me? He goes, interesting fact, Todd. He goes, um, vitamin K, which is what calls, causes blood clotting. When we map children, vitamin K spikes on the eighth day. I mean, universally, eighth day out of the womb, womb, vitamin K spikes in a child and it causes bloods to coagulate. Now we didn't know that for years, but there's a reason probably God said, don't circumcise your kid to the eighth day because his blood, he'll bleed out if you do it too quick. God made the human body and he knew exactly, don't do it before this day. So on the eighth day, it's okay to circumcise. I go, well, then why are you going to chop on my boy on day three? He says, because remember when we took your kid from you right after that? We shoot them today with all kinds of stuff, including vitamin K. So you need to wait to the eighth day. Your boy's going to be fine. I watched him get circumcised. He was not fine. Let me just tell you something. <clears throat> all right, here we go. <laughs> Circumcising the eighth day of the nation of Israel. Okay. Um, I was born, you know, into this place. I'm not a half-breed. I'm not a, not a God-fearer that was grafted in. I'm part of the people that God gave the book to, okay? Uh, I'm the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is the most beloved son of the most beloved wife that Joshua had in his imperfection, or Jacob had in his imperfection, rather. And, um, and Benjamin was the one tribe that never betrayed the tribe that God said the Messiah would come from, which is Judah. When Israel split... When uh, Jeroboam challenged Rehoboam, the descendant of David, to be king, 10 of the tribes took off. One tribe stayed around and supported Judah. It was Benjamin. Paul says, I'm one of those guys. We've never left. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, man. My mama and daddy, uh, they, we didn't just go to the temple. We did the deeds. And then he says, watch this. As to me, I chose to be a Pharisee, which is that I made this my career. I studied the law and became the most vigilant student of Gamaliel. We know that from Acts chapter 5, that, that he was the one that discipled Paul, which is like going to Harvard. That's who Gamaliel was. And he goes on to say this. He goes, as to zeal, I was the top dog. I used to kill people who believe what you believe, friends in Philippi. 
as the righteousness which is found in the law, I'm the holiest man around. There was no Pharisee in the class that was more fastidious, that was more committed to this book and to the law and the Pharisaical practices than me. I was top dog. I killed people who said that external righteousness didn't make you righteous. And I was an evil worker. And I was a dog. And I was mutilating the beauty of Jesus. And so Paul says this, watch this, here's the accountant. And so now whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I had enough morality, Paul said, to make men revere me and to make me look in the mirror and go, you a righteous dude. But I did not have enough righteousness to get me into heaven and please God. Because I didn't know how righteous God was. More than that, Paul says, I count, here it is again, figure all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing. That word there, knowing, is the word yada in, 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 in the Greek. Yada means to know deeply, like, you know, yada, yada. Like, let's, let's get really intimate, right? I, I want to know intimately Jesus, not know about. There's another word, oida, that talks about knowing about something intellectually. Paul says, I want to gnosis. I want to deeply, intimately experience experience community with Jesus. That's all I want, whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but scubala. Okay? The word balo is, um, uh, is the word to throw. And, and you put the little prefix sku in front of it. It's like um, to throw to dogs. Paul says it's all rubbish. In other words, I look at this. So the word right there, that word rubbish, it's, it's a much more vile word than rubbish. It, it, it's the word for excrement. It was used of a half-eaten corpse. It's used of um, piles and lumps of manure. It's used for refuse and dung and garbage. It's what you throw to the dogs. Paul says, I consider everything that I did that makes me righteous. Give that to the dogs. Let them eat it. Put it in the city dump. It is excrement. It is worthless. This is Isaiah 64, verse 6. For all of us, it says in the scriptures, have become like one who is unclean and all righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, Isaiah says. There's nothing you can clothe yourself in that you do. It's the word for a sanitary napkin right there. And Paul's saying, do you really want to present yourself in that? Paul's saying, that's all that I was working on. That's all I was trying to do. And so I counted all as loss. Verse nine, he says, all I want is to be found in him. I want to be by faith in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus. The righteousness was come from God on the basis of faith. He gets the glory. There is no resume I'm turning in. When I stand before the Lord, I'm not going to give him any of my own resume except this. I'm a sinner who by the grace of God saw my imperfection in light of who you were. And I availed myself to your offer of mercy for me that you, even though you were God and are God, you didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you emptied yourself and you became humble and you took on the appearance of a man and being found in the likeness of a man, you humbled yourself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for me so that I could be made righteous by you. And I don't understand that kind of love and that kind of humility, but man, it's changed me. Now watch this. Paul says, when I see the beauty of this God who loves me so much that he would die for me, I mean, listen to the Christmas carols. Listen to what they're saying. Uh, they're declaring that hope has come. Joy has come into the world. God doesn't hate you. He's not mad at you. He wants to rescue you from going your own way. He wants to rescue you from trying to find joy in works and work and children and health and circumstances and wealth and comfort and ease and college football. And he's just saying, some of those things are my gifts. Use them as gifts, but don't focus on the creation. Focus on the creator. Enjoy some of those things. Just don't make them your God. When you understand that God, who you want to focus on, all he does is have your best interest in mind. We're going to move now from being an accountant who considers the foolishness of what he had done and the greatness of what Christ has done to an athlete who pursues more of this God. Are you ready? You with me? Verse 10. I want to know him even more. 
Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, that power that raised Jesus from the dead, the God power that makes dead men alive, I want that power to come into my dead, rotten, money-loving, you know, world-distracted world flesh. The power of God that raises men from the dead raise me from my flesh. That's what he's talking about right here. I want to know that power. I want a fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. This is the only life I've got. I want more zeal to live the way he lived when he was here. His humility, I want to be my humility. His suffering for sinful men, I want to suffer for sinful men. I want to know more of the glory and the goodness of God so I live more like it. I want to deliver more mail. I want to be bit by more rabid people. I want to be more loving. I want to suffer the way he suffered for the only message we're suffering for. I want to be conformed to his death. This is not Paul saying, I want to die. This is him saying, I must decrease so he must increase. I want to, I want to be humble as he was. Him who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. I don't regard living for Todd as something to be tolerated. Now, can I just tell you something? I love to live for Todd. When Todd gets angry, I go, yes. Todd wants to be angry. Let's be angry. Todd wants to lust. I go, good, Todd, let's lust. Todd wants to be selfish. I go, yes, Todd, let's be selfish. And you know what? I need brethren who it's no trouble to them and a safeguard to me to remind me of the stupidity of living that way so I can have less joy and more scars. And Paul said, I'm doing everything I can by myself, but I need the church. I ain't sending you Timothy because I'm keeping Timothy here with me to remind me to rejoice in the Lord. And I'm in the word continually reminding myself of the goodness of God so that I might attain and somehow, and, and, and somehow possibly by the grace of God, I might attain to the resurrection from the dead, which he's saying here that I might live like I will one day in glory. Now, Paul knew he wasn't going to be perfect. He's about to talk about this. He knew he would never be on earth without some level of sin. But he's saying, you know what I'm doing? I am pressing on to be more like I'm going to be when God gets done with me on this earth where I'm still battling my flesh and the course of this world and the enemy who seduces me with the worries of the world and the sleepiness of riches and the concern for many things. I want to love Jesus so much, I'm like a person who's already been glorified living on earth. That's what he's talking about. But watch, watch his humility. Not that I'm already that. Lord knows I'm not. Not that I've already become ultimately perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Jesus. Because Jesus, in his kindness, those he foreknew, he also predestined to conform them ultimately to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn of many people. And God is going to complete this good work which he began in you, Philippians 1.6. He's going to make you without sin. He's going to make you a glorious person who knows him and is intimately acquainted with him and sin has been eradicated from your life. You're not there yet, but pursue that. And never submit that as your resume because you can't because once you're not perfect, you don't have a resume, except I'm imperfect. So count Jesus as your righteousness. Pursue Jesus today. This is your past. This is your present, athlete. You're pursuing. Now watch this. In verse 13, brother, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward. The word there's like a sprinter leading towards the tape. Okay? The word in the Greek literally means to spread out, to grow, to, to, um, to, to, to increase. Paul's saying, I'm just like, you know I mean? It's just, it's like the guy at the tape, he's just leaning forward. He wants more of Jesus. This forgetting what lies behind. I don't want to beat you up too much about this, but people use this like sometimes when they've sinned, they go, well, I forget what I've done. Right? Forgetting what lies behind. I'm just pressing on to what's forward. I'm like, no, you shouldn't forget what you did. You should agree it was nasty and sinful and hurt that relationship. You should confess it and forsake it and find compassion. Don't forget it. In fact, what I would encourage you to do when you hear slobbering in my office because you're unfaithful to your wife and your kids have lost your respect and you've lost your marriage, don't forget this. Journal it. Write it down because I want to tell you what's crazy. In 10 years, you'll somehow forget how awful this was and you'll do it again. If you don't write it down and read it every night in horror. But just remember how awful sin is because sin has this incredible capability to eventually be numb to it and go, oh, it wasn't that bad when I did that. This verse is not talking about forgetting sin. 
This verse is talking about forgetting every good thing that he has done, and he wants more good in his life. What he's basically saying is three missionary journeys, <laughs> dozens of church plants, <laughs> wrote the book of Romans already. <laughs> I want more. I want to be more of what Jesus wants for me. I want every word that comes out of my mouth to be God-glorifying, doctrinally pure, church-exalting words. I'm not going to tell you, hey, I've been so good, give me a break. Paul's going to say, I've been good, make me better. Okay, that's what that means. Forgetting what lies behind, let's go. Let's be more. Let's excel still, excel still more. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, verse 14. This is my goal, to be like Jesus. Everything in my life points to this. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, he's talking there about positionally, him who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed. You are already justified. You are declared righteous by God. You will be glorified, but, but be, be being sanctified right now. Let us therefore, as many as are gonna be perfect in Jesus and are perfect in Jesus and will be perfect one day, have this attitude that I've got. If anything in you have a different attitude, God's gonna reveal that to you. He's gonna convict you. Why? Because you go to places where the letter is read as a safeguard for you. So let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. I'm gonna just insert this real quick. This is my favorite illustration. I have it almost every week to use and I don't get to use it very often. But let me explain what Paul's doing right here. Like an athlete that he's going forward. Um, you know, the Rocky movies have kind of come back into our, our, our self-awareness right now because of Creed II, which I went and saw last night. And um, <laughs> I was like, man, just show me the fight scenes. You can watch that movie in 12 minutes, all right? Um, but the Rocky movies have, have been just a blast in my life, right? That, I mean, when that starts, I learned to my, 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 I was with my 15-year-old son last night. When that happened in the movie, I go, that is the greatest piece of music ever written for a movie. <laughs> it is. I can't hear it without just going, let's go, baby. Let's go. <laughs> you want some? Let's go, because I'm ready, right? And so that, that's kind of, I mean, you just ought to read Rocky into Philippians that, that, that music ought to come into your little head when you're reading 10, 16. It's like, let's go. You want to go to war world? You want some Satan? You want some dogs? That movie um, is uh, inspired by, okay, um, some events that happen in real life. I can remember as a kid in 1975, I was 12, listening on an AM radio to a round-by-round -round update in my bed of the Thriller in Manila. It's when Joe Frazier fought Muhammad Ali. It's October 1st, 1975. It was the third fight between Frazier and Ali. What people didn't know is that, um, is that Frazier was blind in his left eye. Do you remember this picture from Rocky? Here's a picture of Rocky, okay, in Rocky 1, when it was the 15th round against Apollo Creed, and his eyes were swollen shut, and he said, I can't see nothing. You gotta cut my eye. Cut me, Mick. You gotta cut me, you gotta cut me, Mick. And, and Rocky had him, and they show it in the movie. He gets the razor blade out and he cuts his eyes, which were swollen shut from Apollo Creed, because, because what, what, what Rocky was saying is, I can't see him to fight him. You gotta cut the pus, cut my eyelid so it oozes out so I can open my eye up. Guess where that came from? This fight. Frazier is blind in his left eye. Ali's right jab keep, uh, kept hitting him. Uh, in, 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 see, he's blind in his right eye and uh, Ali's jab kept hitting him in the, left, in the left eye and this is a picture of Frazier after the fight right here you can see that right eye was swollen shut going into the 15th round Frazier couldn't see out of his one good eye and his cut man Eddie Fuchs looked at him and he just and then Frazier said you gotta, you gotta, I gotta go I'm going back he goes you can't see he goes cut me because I want the heavyweight title and Eddie wouldn't do it Ali said he's never come so close to dying in his life. He was never so happy to see the towel thrown in. But Frazier said, I was never so sad that the towel was thrown in because I want the heavyweight title. I despise the fact that you would cut my eye. Now listen, we hear the word despise and we're like, it means we don't like something. That's exactly right. I, don't, I, I, I value it. I, I, it's valueless. I count it as rubbish. What Frazier was saying is, hey, Cut my eye. Hey, bro, we're going to have to cut your eye with a razor blade. He goes, rubbish. Scavallo. That's crap to me in light of the glory of the heavyweight title. So when it says, I despise the pain, he's saying, it's worthless to me. That's an athlete fighting for a fleeting title that you don't even remember. Paul's saying, you're fighting for so much more 
what is it? Verse 17. Paul says, be like me. Who lives like that, by the way? The answer is an athlete. <laughs> Brethren, join me in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. There are some that have stopped competing. And their end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. They are distracted and they have been brought to bay by the dogs. But not us, we're aliens. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, our Lord, who loves us, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. He will Wow, by the exertion of his power that he has to subject all things to himself. You serve the king. Don't you fear those who can destroy the body? You fear the one who can destroy the body and cast the soul into hell forever. You fear the one who can raise the dead and will raise the dead, the one who's died for you. You love him. And then the application is, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy, my crown, my brothers and sisters who love this Jesus with me, stand firm, stand firm. Live in this world in a way that the dogs can't believe that you're that courageous, that you're that consistent in snow, in sleep, in rain, in suffering, in dishealth, in persecution, you deliver the mail. Because you got a message worth delivering. You got a glorious future and you live like this isn't your home. You're like an athlete who wants something so much more than a fleeting heavyweight crown, and you count all your righteousness as nothing, and you count what Jesus did for you as everything. An accountant, an athlete, and an alien walk into the world, and the world was never the same. Father, I pray the world would never be the same because of us, because we are your people called by your name, set free by the Christmas story and song that isn't just a song, it is history. History that will change us. We love you. Amen.